0: Forum, Borealis, Paradigm, Expansion.
1: Greetings from the North, humans of Earth, welcome to another episode of our series, Timeline of a Breakaway Civilization. This term, coined by Richard Dolan, is closely associated to the classified space program, seeing as while we, the plebs, are chained to an earthly assembly line with blinders while being surveilled, controlled, censored and squeezed into a ridiculously narrow overtone window, the insiders are operating at a completely different level, which is a civilization away from us traversing through space and occasionally being sloppy and ending up as yet another UAP blip on the collective radar of us ants. If this claim is too much for you to swallow, I do encourage you to listen through the many episodes we've committed on the evidence for such a covert space program. These days being whitewashed and brought into the public ever so smoothly and gradually as to not arise suspicion. And my prediction is that after this has been established for some years... The current soft disclosure will bring about breakthroughs, quote-unquote, in the tech, where we will be told that we finally can reach through the solar system to everyone's applause and excitement of living in a day and age where we know everything, conquer anything, and support the brave heroes of our space force. So... If something like this happens, remember you heard it here first and then you know you've been taken for a gigantic cosmic ride. And currently, it seems, they will credit alien tech with this breakthrough But just when did we really get our hands on these next-level propulsion and navigation systems? Certainly the military industrial complex has had it since the 50s, as disclosed in several other shows in this series. But was that really the first time humans played with such toys? Yes, we can always credit some pre-Diluvian civilization as much evidence points to this not being our first A.G. rodeo. But even so, there is no direct link from there to now because we've been functioning at a Stone Age level in between. As we've touched in other shows, whether there's a reverse engineering of alien or ancient tech There is in fact also a direct provenance of natural developed science going back many decades beyond World War II. And one of our former guests has even tied this to the steampunk period of the 1800s and the mysterious airship flaps occurring then. Although this may not be the human origin, it can indeed be origin to our contemporary real space program, which is in its last classified phase, ready to be rolled out. So today, we go back again to examine this early period once more. And here's a sample of that.
2: He was the source, I think, that um, told Tim Swartz about it, that he had received some information on it. And um, Tim really pursued it and and, and pulled those threads. And, and basically, it's that um, 1903, just like I said, a group of American investors asked Tesla, came to Tesla, paid him to do this. And that was their goal, to fly to Mars. And they're never heard from again, unless some people wonder there's uh, a, a young guy in texas who um proposed the idea his 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 name is john batista mm-hmm. and he suggested that maybe the signals that tesla talked about receiving from mars it's his idea that gee maybe um Maybe that was the the group that you know. Et phone home. Yeah, yeah. It was the airship group of 1903. There are references in Mahabharata and Vedas that Oh, to, yeah, yeah to advanced technology, yeah, yeah. but but not spe, not the specific thing that people attribute right, um, not the designs, not yeah, not not the designs and things. They do talk about vimanas, of course, yeah, but yeah. they don't go into the detail that the 1908 book does and uh, and it's so suspicious that timing of that
1: book it's right in in this uh, time period when we exactly
2: see, w- right? which to, which to me actually could further ironically could corroborate what was going on right in the 19th century and into the 20th with the bell because it suggests that the guy who wrote the book might have been among this culture that was uh, exploring this stuff and developing this stuff. so it, it it ironically doesn't need to have been um sourced specifically sourced, you know in in its specifics from the ancient texts. It could have been something yeah. written by somebody very knowledgeable with what these groups were doing in, in the kind of technology that they had pursued and were developing through the nineteenth century.
1: I'm saying Egypt for two reasons. number one, Mm-hmm. Nimsa, phonetically, sounds like an Egyptian reference. Now, when people sure make does. up, right? And when people make up names like this, uh-huh. they often want to, especially if they're esoterics, they want to have these multi-leveled. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, it den- it may denote what you said on the trivial level, yeah. but they also want a callback or homage to uh, wherever the, uh, yes. the sources, right? And here's the punchline of my speculation. Uh-huh. You told me last time it means it, 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 somehow it's connected to the nameless one. Yes. Yeah. Now that's um, an Egyptian reference.
2: Yes. He was one of the founders of the field of thermodynamics mm. and what he came up with was the Rankine turbine. Mm. So if you look at the Rankine turbine, it is virtually identical to what Delshow um, claims Peter Menace applied to the uh, Sonora Aero Club arrows flying machines um, a year after Rankin published this and his diagram and everything. Uh, you, you know what your next uh, task is going to be, right? What's
1: that? Finding a connection between uh, Rankin and the leader of the club.
2: That's exactly. <laughs> and that's exactly where I'm going with that. And by the way, here's the thing just because just because we essentially have the ranking turbine engine process in these alleged flying arrows. Um, it doesn't mean Dell Shao was making that up. Um, it could be that menace liked the process. Remember the secret to what menace was doing was the fuel he used. So it could, it looks like what menace did was um, use the uh, ranking turbine but his own special fuel Hmm. that resulted in... it made the flight apparatus work.
1: Who you heard in conversation with me was, of course, our recurring guest, the investigator Walter Bosley, who's also an author, filmmaker, producer and publisher. He was educated in film, gen ed at San Bernardino Valley College from 81 to 83 and subsequently went to the San Diego State University between 83 and 95 where he earned a BA in journalism. Bosley's background as a world-travelling author and explorer of extraordinary phenomena started with being recruited in '88 as a counterintelligence specialist for the FBI in the final years of the Cold War. During this time, he was studying Russian and monitoring wiretaps of GRU agents working in Manhattan. In 93 he reported to the United States Air Force Officer Training School and served his entire active duty time as a special agent of the Office of Special Investigations running counter espionage operations while on active duty for 5 years after earning his USAF commission His longest assignment was at Wright Patterson as a counter-espionage agent, during which time he also served on deployment to Saudi Arabia. Military service was followed by six years as a reserve officer, where he travelled the world in his capacity as personal security and counter-terrorism operational consultant. This took him to such locations as the Middle East, Central Asia, North Africa, Eastern and Western Europe, South America and the Philippines. World travel gave him opportunity to see ancient sites and encounter much interesting exotica with a fair share of close calls. In those days, Walter took the opportunity to travel with fellow explorer, publisher and author David Hatcher Childress and the Wex Club to the Mayan sites of central Mexico and the Inca sites of Peru and Bolivia. After spending 20 years in the U.S. national security, he in 2009 became a licensed private investigator specializing in advanced discrete physical surveillance services for other PI firms, as well as conducting investigations in both state and internationally. His services also included threat and vulnerability assessment on a global scale. Moreover, Walter Bosley has always been drawn to the creative fields. He started already after college with working in the mainstream entertainment industry as a production assistant on a few films. In the mid-late 90s, he also started with screenwriting and got an agent. But in O two, he seriously moved into showbiz when he founded the film company Lost Amazon Motion Pictures, developing and producing several independent films, some which you will find listed at IMDb. As a film producer, director and author slash screenwriter, he used local resources and locations to create micro-budget films. But perhaps first and foremost, Walter is a publisher and author. Under the banner of his small press publishing company and its imprints, which he envisioned when in Sudan and created in 02, called the Lost Continent Library, He's published classic adventure evocative of the pulp and Victorian eras, steampunk, sci-fi, fantasy, as well as paranormal and alternative science non-fiction. In between PI assignments, he also spent time writing fiction under the pseudonym EA Guest, and non-fiction, as well as investigating strange mysteries which has been supported by traveling the globe both on the job and off. Among his primary literary inspirations are Edgar Poe, Ray Bradbury, John Irving, Howard Lovecraft, Louise Lamour, Arthur Mecken, Henry Haggard, Robert Howard, Edgar Burroughs, Richard Matheson, Jules Verne, Harlan Ellison, and Manly Hall. He has now been a specialty publisher for over two decades, and as an author and investigator, his main field, apart from screenwriting, is Pulp Fiction Novels and Historical Occult Mysteries, of which he has also written many articles for journals, such as Wex Magazine, Paranoia Magazine, Mythic Delirium Magazine, and Fate magazine. Obviously Walt has been featured in too many media outlets to list here but I can mention some of the classics like Ancient Aliens, Coast to Coast, Dark Journalist and Hoagland's Other Side of Midnight. On the esoteric side he became an initiate of the ancient and accepted Scottish rite Most of his non-fiction books follows the arc of two different series, The Empire of the Wheel, with its emphasis on esoteric history, and Secret Missions, with its emphasis on exotic explorations. Today we return to the subject we first had him on about, to reflect upon where we stand now in our understanding of the early aviation and anti-gravity programs. To expand further upon this subject, as outlined in his follower book to France from Sonora, called Origin, the 19th century emergence of the 20th century breakaway civilizations. Today, I'm so pleased to have back a guest that we haven't heard from in a long time. Welcome to the show, Walter. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and uh, I- I'll take it on me that you haven't been back Um uh, people have uh, inquired now and then, uh, and there's no real reason actually. <laughs> well, it's been a
2: weird couple of years for everybody, so. <laughs> that
1: it has. That it has. Can we, can we, uh, you, you know, my listeners told me something had happened to you. Can we touch that briefly?
2: Um, yep. Is uh, it private? Uh, uh, no. Hey, no. I've, I talked about it while I was, was going through it a couple of years right. ago. Um, I was diagnosed with, uh, cancer and get this. Uh huh. I got diagnosed the day before the quarantine started. <laughs> Jesus. I'm not kidding in 20 in what is it? 2020, right? Yeah, um I got diagnosed the day before. I got diagnosed and then the next day they set the quarantine, so interestingly enough, it was the best time to go through chemo. <laughs> I mean, right because nobody could do anything so i didn't feel like you know i was being left out of anything right and the nice thing was i was what they call t1n1 one tumor one node they got all of the tumor in the surgery and they blasted the hell out of the one node with 6 months of chemo and i was only stage 2 and mm. they treated it like it was stage 3 and you know what so far so good every 90 days i get a blood test i've been 2 years now since I finished chemo wow. and my um, my ninety day checks have been all clear, mm. and uh, they, they you know it it's it's a very good prognosis so far. So
1: mm. that's great. Um, but I would just want to say about the cancer thing. I heard that during COVID, during the the lockdowns, many cancer patients weren't treated. But I guess uh, you were lucky then.
2: Yeah, it. Um... You know, it, what was interesting was no family could go into the hospital with me. Right. Um, yeah. I, I had they they would drive me there. I'd have to go in to the uh, clinic where, of course, everyone was wearing masks and they were really strict on the uh, covid testing. Um, but, uh, yeah, I I was lucky compared to some situations where. People weren't able to even get that. Um, so, I've, you know, I consider myself lucky all the way around. <laughs> so. can, can I ask where you got it? Oh, um, oh, you mean uh, I had colon cancer. Colon, right. It's, um, it, it's part of the digestive tract. It's the big organ that's shaped right. kind of like an upside-down U, and they had to remove part of that to get the uh, – in one side, they had to uh, to get the tumor. They had to remove a section of it, but it went hmm. great. And um, do, you, do you have any I've... theories of what may have caused it? you know what i uh... Uh, Yeah. And I asked, I have asked, I said, Hey, you know what, what exactly caused this? And what's weird is you you don't, I haven't gotten an answer. So the way I look at it is I'm in that age group that I think we were the first generation to really have a lot of the canned foods and the food preservatives and stuff. Mm -hmm. Maybe a a big chunk of my lifetime eating that stuff contributed to it down the road, but it, you think it would have turned up sooner. Um, Maybe it was something I got in the years I was traveling in some places, but, you know, I doubt that because, you know, I think it would have shown up sooner. Who knows? I, I honestly don't know the answer to it. Um, I do know that, um, It could also be the red meat. I was a, I love red meat. I was a red meat lover. Now it scares me. (laughs) My doctors laugh. What's your diet like these days? Uh, Well, um, chicken and fish and a lot more greens. I I mean, I I would eat greens before, but basically, I've um, virtually eliminated the red meat. Like I said, they kind of laughed at my fear of red meat and said, look, you need to you need to boost your iron a little bit and a little bit of red meats. okay. just don't overdo it again, you know, Mm -hmm. but um, mostly chicken, fish and greens. And now I will tell you this. This is what surprised me. I made a joke about, you know, oh, yeah, I I guess I'll finally lose all that weight I wanted to lose before I went into (laughs) treatment. And the oncologists get this. They told me they go, oh, no, no, we don't want to see you lose any weight. And I'm like, Uh well, I could afford to lose a few. And they said, here's the thing. When you see cancer patients losing weight, they said, that's not the medicine. That's not the treatment. That's the cancer. Uh They say that they wanted to see me maintain (laughs) wait they didn't want to see me do a big weight loss and so I that surprised me I thought okay and so I looked forward to getting active again Hmm. after because when they put you on six months of chemo it takes you two days for recovery for every one day you're under the treatment so they told me that it would be a year before I would get uh, back to to normal and then just as I was approaching the year I had an allergic, or whatever, that's the way my doctor called it, reaction to the vaccine. Legitimately. So you did get jabbed. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, well, here's the thing almost 60, went through cancer. You know, they convinced me that I was in that category that yeah. it'd probably be a good idea. So I went ahead and went along with it. And I'll tell you, I've regretted it for a year. Which, which um, one did you get? I got Pfizer naturally mm. it uh mRNA. yeah and, and i'll tell you my doctor was infuriated that the initial um when i the initial doctor i went to see at the emergency room because i just want to make sure i wasn't having a stroke she was infuriated that they they just refused to treat it like it was a reaction to the vaccine she said of course you're having a bad reaction yeah. to the vaccine that's exactly what's going on and it affected my hearing so you
1: had a decent doctor
2: Good for yeah. You. Oh, she's wonderful in my oncology. And, and
1: and she may have prevented worse because oh, yeah. people get boosted, right? You would probably have got boosted if you hadn't noticed. Oh, I. Noticed. I
2: will not. I. They're not coming near me with another yeah. one. I have no boosters. I haven't been encouraged or pushed to get one. I'm not going to get one. You know, I'm I'm serious. The uh, uh the the vaccine ravaged me more than chemo. Believe yeah. it or not. Yeah. And um, I came away with seventy percent hearing loss in one ear. I came away with screwed up vision. I had to have ophthalmologic surgery and my vision still isn't what it should be. Mm. And I I now have get this rheumatoid arthritis as a result of the vaccine. And my rheumatologist is the one who told me that Mm. he said it's a result of the vaccine. He's Mm. treating 20 other patients who got it because of the vaccine. So, um, gosh.
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the damages are never-ending, and now people are dying, too. There's a new document out now called Suddenly Dead. I've heard of it's, it. yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, but um, you live in California, don't you? Mm-hmm. Yes, I do. So you're lucky uh, because uh, it's a new law now. Now uh, the the re- rheumatic doctor, he's not allowed to tell you it was the my vaccine, and the other doctor who who, who said you had a reaction, they're not allowed. They're going to lose their license if they do. You when, probably know. W- about. When did
2: that pass? It passed um, a week or two ago. Oh, just you mean just last week on election day? So how in the heck? Probably
1: right before the election, I think. Yeah.
2: Wow. It was right
1: before the election.
2: I wasn't aware of that, see.
1: No, because I think they wanted it right before the election, Newson or whatever his name is, because Uh the people he are appealing to are still covid Karens, right? Yeah. They still want lockdowns and stuff. They're completely brainwashed. So, for him, that's a win.
2: Well, yeah yeah and he's as you know he's steeped in the uh Corrupt. the yeah. the political corruption and stuff in this state mm. um in fact i i, I kind of write about him and that a little bit in uh my most recent secret missions book um okay and You know what? So, interestingly enough, diagnosed the day before the quarantine started for everybody. I got, you know, got through that. The treatment was six months and so far so good. I've been uh, all clear on all my checks for, uh, Mm. my gosh, uh, two years now. Okay. Thank God for that. But you know, I did even that year. I wrote and published two books so yeah that's probably a great uh, excuse to do two books <laughs> right <laughs> because I
1: looked up your books and uh, yeah your curriculum is much larger now than than uh, back in the day yeah. when we talked mm. Mm. Anyway, so you're right back in
2: business and you did uh, get to write uh, a few books. Yeah, a, a couple of short books um, I did uh, uh, actually this one book, Confessions of a Spooky Mind, which is really the only book I've ever written about myself it's of course my shortest book <laughs> uh, and uh, but it's about my weird experiences with paranormal and other things personal experiences mm-hmm. and then I wrote a book about the interesting Ingersoll lockwood mystery with a researcher named todd wood and uh, yeah i was able to get both those out hmm. during that crazy year of 2020 so i, I kept busy always that's the key yeah yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And loving what you do. But
1: always you and these super obscure topics. <laughs> you really manage to drag out. Uh, I mean, so many go for, for things become in vogue and then you have a million books about the same thing. But you always mm-hmm. take on very original matters. Now, since last you were on, which I think was 16 or something, you've flushed out a million books and, um, uh, mm. We did agree we're gonna cover some others. You know, we have a lot of book readers among our audience, so sure. we'll get back to some of them. But yeah, let's, uh, <clears throat> let's uh, decide what we're gonna discuss here, because there's sure. at least three books I want to do with you. Okay. Um, and um, I have an idea of which one we could do today. Now, there's the one I half agreed with you to do earlier, which is Secret Mission Hidden League Legacy of Old uh, California. Mm-hmm. Uh, i did do yeah i did do one secret mission with you about francis burton yes yes but this one is uh, i really were drooling over this one it involves tamperers and everything right
2: oh oh, you mean the the first one the cabrillo one the california one yes yeah yeah
1: yeah the hidden legacy of old california
2: yeah And, and and i do revisit Uh, the Cabrillo research um, in Secret Missions 5, Veiled Destinies. So we'll touch on that, I'm sure. Yeah, and it's a little,
1: I I really looked for a place that had all your books in one place, because they're scattered here and there. But I think Goodreads have many of them, if not all of them. Um,
2: well, any time you want any of my books, let me know, and I will send you copies.
1: Yeah, look, uh, to do that's the problem with the hidden legacy of old California. That's one that. If I wing that, it will be bad. I think I should read that one and then we should have a show on that sure. one. So that's that, that one I want to do with you. Uh, Another yeah. I want to do with you, which I can wing is Emperor of the Wheel 3, the Nameless Ones, because it's, Ooh, okay. yeah, because the contextual information is very known to me. Sure. Mm-hmm. I know all, all these players. I don't know the story, but that's <laughs> part of the fun, right? No. Now, friends from Sonora, we did do, but mm-hmm. then of course there's Origin. We never got around to do that. Now we half did it, oh, okay, when we did Friends of Sonora, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? because yeah. it's related. So I was going to ask you today, because we could do that today, because is it something I know about? It's the uh, it's the break of a civilization, right? So yes. Yes. I was thinking, <clears throat> is it a lot of new info? Is it is it responsible to do an episode on it? I don't want to just rehash the Friends of Sonora episode. So so is it very different from the... Um, Nimsa. I think.
2: Yeah, it 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 expands on that is what it does. I go into uh my uh I don't want to use the word speculative, but I speculate on on I try to offer who might have been involved with Nimsa from the perspective of the German industrialists of the 19th century who were also interested in esoteric mm. um subjects which would tie in with the um the ancient sources of flight right and that's Mm. that's how they would have possibly you know these are the most likely guys we know of who would have been part of nim so it goes into that and then it goes into um uh this mysterious group i call the 1903 which was what i think was the american airship group um it goes into you know it shows a little bit more of the um connections of the the nimza and uh, nazi reich mm. um, you, you know there is the issue of i can show you a hypothetical line from nimza right into the third reich right into the you know post-war okay. operation paperclip stuff however the american group seems to have just disappeared off the map and mm. off the globe or, or what have you. So suspicious. Yeah. So that, that's, that's kind of an interesting aspect of that. And, Absolutely. And, and there's a crashed ET saucer, right? Um, that's a new one. No. Cause that's what, that wasn't an old one. No, no, no. The, the, the crash thing was, I, I talk about that subject in shimmering light. Uh-huh. The book about my dad's experience in the Air Force. Oh yeah, um, the MKUltra Ultra
1: Thing. Yeah. I saw that yeah. one too. That's a new one.
2: Yeah. And um Well and and as you know, there's threads that connect all my books, of course, you know.
1: But it does say that um uh, nor from the post-war military-industrial complex, or the reverse engineer of a crashed ET saucer, and then one of the commenters say something about uh, this crashed saucer. So yeah,
2: I don't actually. I no, I don't advocate uh, the the crashed ET saucer hypothesis. No, no, no. I, I know that. I mean, uh, what I'm saying is that th- th- something crashed, and you're saying it's human, right? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, you're talking about, yes, in Shimmering Light, I go into my hypothesis that what happened at Roswell was, uh, you know, the first American attempt at manned space flight. Yeah. Okay,
1: Roswell. Yeah. Because it says it's in this book. Let me see what the guy said. In 1897, a UFO supposedly crashed somewhere in Texas. Everyone oh, is-
2: Aurora, Texas. Yeah. I think that was the, the airship. And I'm not the only, I'm not the first and only person to, no, no. to say that. Of course. So, yeah. But there has the point though. Oh. That means
1: that you have new in, uh, information. One thing is, you you have better let's say speculation or analysis is the word you okay. have better analysis today of course than you had in the early days when you begun that's a given right i think so but maybe. you also have some new information that we can <laughs> integrate into the analysis right and if that's true i think we should take on this book today
2: well what i do yeah that sounds good to me that what what i do is i Go back and look at original source material, and mm. do my analysis, and show that what is popularly believed about these things is really not uh, yeah. accurate to what was reported and what the likely, you know, within the context, what the likelihood was. So that's that's generally as you know what I offer on that.
1: Yeah, and I saw your excellent lecture at uh, Jerome's uh, convention. <clears throat>
2: I, I mm, guess thank that's- you
1: pretty close to the
2: book too Well, that actually I did that presentation if you recall maybe you Mm. don't know I I did that presentation right before I started writing the book I had all the data and um, it was Joseph Joseph Farrell who said you need to write this as a book like as soon as possible and so (laughs) after that I spent November and December of that year cranking out origin uh, cranking it out I say I had done the research and did additional stuff but, um, yeah, so the, the presentation is what led to the book. Mm. Okay, uh, let's
1: let's let's just do that book now then. Okay. Because mm. I think it's only behooves us that today we do take on, <laughs> let's go back to the origins as one say, and we mm-hmm. do take on that topic because my show started out with that series. We call that series um, Timeline of a Breakaway Civilization. Mm-hmm. And we've had on everyone for that, of course, half the convention speakers of that um, convention where you gave an excellent Mm -hmm. lecture. Folks, if if you haven't checked it out, look up um, the Secret Space Program channel uh, on YouTube, for example, and check out Walter's lecture on origin. And as you told me, that was actually done before the book.
2: Yes, it's the research... Uh, that led directly to the book as i told you before the day after i got home from that event i started writing the book
1: yeah i we can yeah. credit yours for that
2: well yeah jo- joseph farrell uh, uh, i'll tell you he's the one that urged me he says you this need you, you better write this stuff in a book because uh, uh, it was just it's a whole bunch of stuff so i yeah. i agreed and and it's one of my i'm I, one of my books i'm i'm most proud of
1: yeah so let's, uh, let's poke a little into that stuff then. Uh-huh. I will encourage listeners who are not familiar with you or haven't heard our first interview about this topic. Um, mm-hmm. I think I called the show Something Strange This Way Flies, but we can't rehash that because there's so much to go into. So people, we're going to start with Nimsa. So we're going to assume you know what Nimsa is. If you don't, go back and listen to that show first and then come back again continue the ride with this one because we have covered uh we've covered the weird uh, connections like <laughs> butch mm-hmm. cassidy and sundance kid oh yeah yeah all it's that's wild. good stuff right so so people yeah. let's just presume people know these things when we start talking about this one now okay great so where do you want to begin what's the beginning of the origins
2: well let me say this in the years since i wrote this book which was 2015 I have come to refer to the breakaway civilizations um, as breakaway societies, because over this time, Mm. uh, you know, when you really look at it, civilization is kind of a big word. It's too big of a word for what we're talking about here, in my opinion. Mm. Um, Civilization, I I think, to most people, certainly to me, implies that, uh, you, you know, it's this entire other world, right? This I mean. It's just a big word. So I refer to them as breakaway society. And here's why it's because really when we talk about these breakaway groups, they are still people who are part of our civilization and they are still functioning within our civilization. They just happen to have within the definition access to the uh, material and financial resources to do their own thing and to keep. The technology they develop under their control, their auspices, and, and you know, to themselves, so to speak. So, uh, being that they're really a group that exists within our civilization, I just see them as a a group, right? A special interest group, breakaway group,
0: mm.
2: gr- breakaway society, and to to put a uh, you know better definition on it, because it, no, it, it really is a society in every way.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. you're absolutely right. You're absolutely correct. And I'll I, I say Dolan will agree with you on it. The reason I think um, he even used the uh, word civilization to begin with is that it's for two reasons. Number one mm-hmm. is that you have this old, uh, I forgot who it comes from, one of the brilliant geniuses that was putting up definitions of civilization, you know, type one, type two, type three. I don't, I don't think yes. we are even type one yet. No. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the thing is, I think those guys who are playing around these groups, these societies, breakaway societies mm-hmm. are actually operating on a strata. Like you say, within our our civilization, yeah. But at a civilization one level, if you see what I mean. Mm-hmm. Sure. So that's number one. Number two, which we can justify to use the term civilization sometimes, is that there's also, and uh, we mentioned Hoagland before we started here. In in people's in his, people like his research, we're also talking a potential break of a civilization far back. You know, mm-hmm. they went to the stars and so may, mm-hmm. n- may maybe ne- never came back or maybe, <laughs> maybe they have come back. Right. And that would be a proper civilization. And then, of course, you have the more uh, French, half cookie theories or maybe not. Who knows about Nazis on the moon, et cetera. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, uh, yeah, this could be interchangeable, but for all intents and purposes, when we discussed them um, here and Basically, when Dolan and others talk about our contemporaries, yeah, they mm-hmm. are obviously, obviously groups. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Uh, NIMSA was one such early group and they had a counterpart in America. And did you have any name for the Americans?
2: Well, um, it, it it's, my hypothesis that they had a counterpart here in the States um, and no, there, nothing emerged um, to identify such a group under any kind of label. The evidence, in my opinion, w- um, really starts with, uh, of course, the Sonora Aero Club of the 1850s in California, which was uh, initially, of course, sponsored by the German group NIMSA. And then we have Solomon Andrews, who did, um, according to newspaper reports of the day, demonstrate a controlled flying machine for members of Abraham Lincoln's War Department during the middle of the Civil War. And he did this openly. uh, The press was there in Washington, D.C., and then it just disappears. Mm. And then 30 years later, we have... The Great Airship Mystery in the United States and all the witnesses who encounter um, the people flying these airships or uh, on the crews of these airships with with a few exceptions. It's all, you know, your typical 19th century um, uh, American inventor engineering types. Right. And, and even identified a couple of um, known figures. uh Colonel Samuel Tillman of the U.S. Army and uh, an, an inventor, engineer named uh, electrical engineer named Amos Dolbear, and these are historical figures um, that that you can find pictures of, and and they're in the historical record. So uh, it, that's followed by the 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 weird. Maybe apocryphal. You know, there's all sorts of reasons to question the weird 1903 story connected to Tesla that mm. uh, says that an American group of investors came to Tesla and paid him to design. Um, and probably be involved with the building of an airship that they could get this fly to Mars. And, yeah. uh, let, this let me sh- just
1: budge in there because we had yeah. on a guy called Timothy Swartz, Tim Swartz.
2: Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. He
1: talked about this. Uh, and, and according to some sources, they actually succeeded in sending someone there. Right. Now, I'm, I'm assuming they would have perished, but, um, Jesus, I don't know. Uh, could uh, could you give a quick recap of that story? Do you know what? Well, Here
2: he, here's the thing. My understanding, and um I I recall getting some input from Tim mm. on this when I heard about it, was curious about it. And I of course, you know, read the book that um he had done worked on with Sean Castile. Mm. Um and apparently uh Jim Keith, the conspiracy theory writer who who passed away years ago, he was the source, I think, that um, told Tim Swartz about it, that he had received some information on it. And um, Tim really pursued it and, and, and pulled those threads. And, and basically, it's that um, 1903, just like I said, a group of American investors um asked Tesla, came to Tesla, paid him to do this. And that was their goal, to fly to Mars. And they're never heard from again, unless some people wonder. There's uh, a, a, a young guy in Texas who um, proposed the idea. His 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 name is, um, oh, I'm forgetting, John Batista. Mm -hmm. And he suggested that maybe the signals that Tesla talked about receiving from Mars, it's his idea that, gee, maybe... um, Mm. Maybe that was the, the group that, you know, Et
1: phone home.
2: Yeah, yeah. it was the airship group of 1903, you know, the 1903 story. And I find that to be really an, an intriguing idea. In fact, I told him, I go, you, you need to go with that and, yeah. and do a book on that, you know, do some research on that, do a lecture or, or something. Yeah, but if Tesla was involved, then I'm starting to think it could be feasible. Well, then there's the issue of, as I talk about in Origin, when I'm discussing this story, um, I learned about Oliver Heaviside. Now, Heaviside was not a professional scientist, but he came up with this theory um, that ultimately was involved with um, electro uh, gravitics, gravitics. sorry, my mm-hmm. pronunciation. Um, in fact, if I can find it here in the the book, Uh, but basically what what his theory, um, uh, hypothetically, I guess, allowed you to do was to create an energy field around an object, like, for instance, uh, an airship. And that energy field, I hypothesize in my book, could have provided the means for a life support system mm. when going out into space. Yeah, in fact, it was called uh GEM, or GEM, and um it meant, oh my gosh, where do I have it? But it's called GEM, Gravito uh, Electric Magnetism, mm. GEM. Any analysis of
1: UFOs or anti-gravity ships that I've seen, um, or, they have some things in common. One is the spin, of course, rotations, torsion. Well. But it- the other
2: is this thing. They have to have this energy field. Yeah, in in GEM, it was discovered that the counter-rotating wheels produced greater magnetic attraction than when rotating in the same direction. The toroidal mass rotational aspects of which may be applied to accelerate objects without those objects experiencing g-forces. Mm -hmm. So there, and remember, these airships of the 1890s had all sorts of spinning wheels on them. And when you think of what allegedly with the bell decades later that they learned about the torsion, it it just seems to fit that this gravito electromagnetism idea, um, which, by the way, he published in 1893, a few years before the great airship mystery started. Okay. And. It uh, Basically, it's comprised of formal analogies between the equations for electromagnetism and relativistic gravitation. And um, it specifically refers to the kinet effect, kinetic effects of gravity, analogous to the magnetic effects of moving electrical charge. I mean, it was just this something that most people that talk about and, and, and learn about the airship mystery are totally unaware of Oliver Heaviside. And when you think of what he was doing... Um, and how it could have been applied, I argue in my book, Origin, that what he had had theorized and developed with this idea um, could have been applied to create a, uh, a life support system. So, therefore, we have a slim chance that an airship crew might have been able to leave the planet and go out in the hostile environment of space.
1: Poor fuckers.
2: And and who knows if they made it to Mars, what they discovered?
1: Yeah, Ah, probably ruins. And uh, they were probably surprised to see that uh, there was some kind of atmosphere there, because that's that's beyond doubt now. Uh, Yeah, the Mars guys. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and okay. So, um, what about this crashed uh, something crashed too
2: in Texas around that time? Yes. Aurora, Texas, during the uh, airship mystery period, Um, I believe it was, I I think it was 1897, the the second year, so to speak. And of course, um, there was tragically of essentially it it had collided, they think, with um, a tower, windmill tower, and uh, there was a fire. And it, you know it burned to the ground, and when the local folks uh, came up to the wreck and they found the 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 pilot's body, essentially burned beyond recognition. It was awful. Mm. Um, one one guy standing there made some comment to the newspaper people that you know that the 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 victim, you know, the pilot, looked like a spaceman. And based on that one offhand comment, which is completely ignorant of the context mm-hmm. of what had been going on for two years and what actually happened in that incident, um, it, it, people, you know, particularly the ET hypothesis crowd, they have ran with that for years and years that it was from another world. And, right. y- you know, y- you look closely at the account, the, the details of what happened, and it was uh, clearly um one of these human constructed human piloted airships that were being reported at the time it wasn't from outer space at all right
1: but um when wherever it was from mm-hmm. the technology if it was human um mm-hmm. the technology this is before the wright brothers and everything right oh yeah and so we must yeah. we must uh, i mean tesla yes but um Could we? Is it possible to see any
2: other sources to this uh, enormous leap? Oh, sure. I, I think that um, this was being developed by these groups who were students of um, ancient texts. Mm-hmm. um esoteric volumes on on ancient techno- technologies lost technologies that kind of thing now people make the mistake of claiming that the so-called um mercury vortex engine is right out of the mahabharata and in, in the ancient um vedic text and such. And actually it's the the famous book that or the book that they famously and erroneously credit is a book that can um, be traced its origin to 1908 and it was a theoretical book then. and it was written originally um, in Sanskrit and was not translated into English until, I want to say the 40s or 50s you know, um, decades after it first came
1: out. Wait a minute. So someone wrote a book in Sanskrit in oh eight. Yeah. Huh. And people thought that was an ancient
2: uh, scripture. Yeah. People today think it was an ancient text, hmm. and it what and it's not the the book that it, it's the summon. Um, I tear up the um. It it's it's a two s title um i i tear up the unless i got it sitting right in front of me yeah. the pronunciation of it but um the the it, it's the book that is very popularly referred to even by scholars as an ancient text
1: yeah yeah but but just to clear up uh, there are references in Mahabharata and vedas that oh
2: two yeah two advanced technology yeah. but yeah. but not but spe- not the specific thing that people attribute right um, not the
1: designs
2: not yeah not not the designs and things they do talk about vimanas of course yeah, but yeah. they don't go into the detail that the 1908 book does and then- and it's so suspicious that
1: timing of that book it's right in in this uh, time period when
2: we exactly. see exactly Which which to me actually could further ironically could corroborate what was going on right in the 19th century and into the 20th with the bell, because it suggests that the guy who wrote the book might have been among this culture that was uh, exploring this stuff and developing this stuff. So it, it, it ironically doesn't need to have been. Um, sourced specifically sourced, you know, in it, in its specifics from the ancient texts. It could have been something yeah. written by somebody very knowledgeable with what these groups were doing and in, in the kind of technology that they had pursued and were developing um, through the 19th century.
1: Yeah, I'll uh, offer some contextual info f- to the benefit of the listeners here, and feel free to comment upon it. And that's that. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe many don't know that back then, these many of the occult circles in U- Europe, at least, uh, probably also America, but at least in Europe, were knowledge because that back then it was in vogue after Blavatsky and all that. It was in vogue to go to the East and find sources, and mm-hmm. so many people uh, became experts in like Tibetan, Sanskrit, other exotic uh, languages. Of course, by this time, we had also cracked the Rosetta Stone. So it was available info for those who had resources. Now, the other contextual piece of information that's interesting is that most people think that the world's uh, museums and universities and all that have. No, most of the stuff that is ancient is in private collections collections hands. Mm-hmm. Maybe not most, but a huge chunk of original stuff is I encourage everyone to go read Michael Begin's book, The Jesus Papers, and he his introduction will shock you when you see how the private market, and of course there's no oversight, there's no control, and it's Texas, as we say here <laughs> in Norway, Wild West is mm-hmm. we actually have an expression. It's Texas. It means it's it's just chaos is and so we have powerful uh, rich people who has uh, these things in their collections. And of course, they let their people study it. Rarely them themselves have the intellectual capacity. Although there are uh, honest exceptions, like uh, the Joss Rittmans, whose library ended up in. Netherlands, public for all after he died, Mm -hmm. a huge collection there. But you have societies who it's much easier for society because then you have a bunch of people coming together. So I could easily see that some of these societies, because back then they were aware of it and they wanted it, had managed to get their hands on stuff from For example, the Great Library in Constantinople Mm -hmm. or the Great Library of Alexandria. Mm -hmm. And there they may have encountered texts that isn't available to us today. And and last thing I want to say to that, there's even texts available to us technically, like they are gathering dust in um uh, basements of museums and universities, but they're not being translated, they're not being looked into, they're not being photocopied and distributed. I'm not saying that's a conspiracy. I'm just saying there's so much and there's so few resources and nobody even cares. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so yeah, it's completely possible that there may be even instruction manuals available from ancient times that some people have got. Because what happened, even when you have... Uh, Stuff like, oh, this is uh, something Jesus may have written, for example. Even that, even if it doesn't say anything that will turn upside down our society, Mm -hmm. it's just too much to let that out to the public. So things like that, if something is too explosive, it takes an act of God. Like, for example, with... uh, uh, Nag Hammadi or the Dead Sea Scrolls. I think it's the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's just a coincidence of history that that's available to us now. They did try mm-hmm. to suppress that for the longest time. And that's trivial compared to what we talk about here. So people shouldn't imagine that the censorship that they're imposing now on the internet is anything new. Mm, no,
2: no, not at all. That's my my little uh, yeah, yeah tirade. The, the, the title of the book I was referring to, I've got it here, I can pronounce it properly, is the yep. Samrangana sutradhara that's the one that people uh very often quote is the ancient text now um the ideas uh are drawn in part from the vimanika shastra which is an older text mm. but the uh samrangana sutradhara goes into specifics and people think that while well, that was in the ancient uh, material and it, it it was not
1: but who's credited
2: as the author Oh gosh, you would ask me that. Let me see if I've got that in the bibliography here, and I'm, you know, what it might take me longer to uh, okay. to find it. <laughs> yeah, no problem. Yeah, but uh, because if it was published
1: anonymously or by a pseudonym, um, right, that
2: in it's, it itself is suspicious. Which which very well could be the case because of what you just um, talked about with the popularity, right, of yeah. the esoteric scholars. Um, yeah, that's
1: typical back then. Kibalion came out in 1908, mm-hmm. the three initiates, so-called, which we know now who it was. So uh, if people think it was an ancient piece of writing, certainly an author didn't get too much credit for that book
2: right it, it it could very well have been the product of one of these esoteric scholars wanting to come off as uh, more authentic so wrote it under um uh, you know a, a pseudonym yeah. that was east indian you know name um it, it, what what's interesting, what I do find interesting about it is the, the concept, right, of the ver- Mercury Vortex engine that we're talking about, the rotation, the spin, and, and you know, just the, the now very familiar concept of that. And it being connected with the story of the bell and such, I find it interesting that no matter who wrote it, no matter where they got the idea, it does seem to reflect what was being reported in the, the previous decades and in the following decades, right? Mm. But um, I, I don't know if I asked you this last
1: time. If I didn't, I should kick myself, but I'll certainly do it now. Uh, and that's if, um, ha, have, have anyone found any links, mm-hmm. even if it's indirect or contextual, between NIMSA and Tula. Or any other of these Nazi uh, occult groups? I know Nimsa was earlier, but we know some of the characters, right? And so maybe
2: maybe there's some network connections there? Um, what I have done is I think um, along the lines of what others have done where, no, there, is, there has been no direct like smoking gun connection Mm. the best we've been able to do so far is you know by context and association who it would likely be would likely have been that would have been involved with a group like nimza that was that you could identify was involved with the the tula society right Mm. You, you could look at their roster and say OK, well, by his age and by his expertise and his interests, um, this guy is probably a likely suspect for NIMSA. The, the good thing we have about that. Situation right there is we do have names and identities of people who were in the Tula Society, and that could help us kind of um, reverse analyze, you know, go back and maybe determine more about NIMSA because NIMSA obviously is the much more mysterious group. We only have one original source of that, and that's the writings of Charles Delshow. And mm. you you have a lot of people who still look at Delshow as just an outsider artist. Which I find that... What time frame do we have for NIMSA? NIMSA, Delshow talks about them existing um, in the mid-1850s at the time yeah. of the Sonora Aero Club. They were, of course, the sponsor of the Sonora Aero Club, um, plus other organizations that are like this that were like the Sonora era club which Delschau does not identify. So we're talking back during that era where the 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 Prussian leadership was pushing for a unification of Germany, right? And mm-hmm. they of course achieved that by 1870 and 1870-71. And so um we're talking I think to be able to have backed These organizations and have achieved uh, what they hypothetically and allegedly were by the 1850s that they had to have, in my opinion, have at least formed prior to 1850. And that's why I kind of looked at all the German industrialists who also were very much involved in the esoteric um, circuit, so to speak, of Germany, um, dating back to, you know, the 18th century. With uh Reichenbach um, but you, you think that the ship
1: that crashed in ninety seven alternatively could be one of the
2: ships that their American counterpart uh, developed Yeah, my first suspicion is to agree with you know other airship scholars. Um, Michael Busby is one of the has done an excellent book on that, and uh, wow. I agree with him. Um, e- e- independently, I agree with him, you know, my own look at this, I agree that it was very much whoever was behind the, uh, airship mystery in America. Mm. And that appears to have been Americans, um, in that particular, particular mystery. But I also point out in one of my other books that, um, there were, uh, airship mystery, airship sightings in South America, um, before the 1890s you know after between the 1850s and the 1890s and i suspect i propose that those were nimza mm. you know german airships down there in south america for many obvious reasons we had in norway too mm-hmm. that's could could also be uh,
1: the german hand mm-hmm. um but um, of course the the connection to Thule is highly speculative and may not even be because if there was a direct connection to Tula, I think that would be very s- soon and very fast be flushed into the Nazi party. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Hitler would get his hands on this kind of technology much sooner than they did. Of course, it, you may argue, ah, well, it takes time to develop this, et cetera. Um, I'm not sure uh, right now on passang when... Uh, Kammler started his area (laughs) 51 in Germany, but um, the Kammler Stab, but Yes. It was towards the end, I think. So, so maybe, but, but I'm pretty sure there would have been rumors and they would know about it. Maybe that's why they were commissioned to even explore it. And there was, of course, all the many, many occult groups in Germany. In fact, Germany, many think France is the, like the main capital of occultism in Europe, but Mm -hmm. it may have been uh, after the war, but before the war, it was actually Germany. What crushed it was the complete control. Of the Nazi regime. That's what really, because they even took their own, even took sympathizers. They didn't want any competition to assess eventually. Mm-hmm. And uh, yes, there were many occult groups there. S- not all of them are Nazi. Right. Uh, and some may have been nationalists, but not Nazis. Some were right. Some uh, were like half Nazi, and then they got anti-Nazi when the Nazis smacked down on them. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. So uh, it's, it's it's a mess, is that what I'm saying? So it doesn't have yeah. to be names uh, Tula
2: people or that closely connected to the Nazis. Right, right. Hey, let me make a big, fat correction here. Mm-hmm. I got two books mixed up. Yeah. The the Samrangana Sutradhara is the older book, mm. okay? The newer book is the Vimonika Shastra, and that's the one that um, one source dates it to 1918. I found a source dating it to 1908. It wasn't translated into English until 1952. It was indeed written in Sanskrit, but it's but it, I, I stand. it been a while since I yeah, <laughs> have well, been neck deep in these books. Yeah. The Vimonika Shastra is the, the 20th century book that gets mistakenly referred to as ancient um hmm. but uh it, again it still stands what we were talking about the things yeah. in the vimana Shastra seem to curiously reflect the things that were being reported and in, in going on so i find it interesting that it was translated um yeah and when did you say 50s 1952 mm. um it was revealed the existence of the text was revealed in 52 um mm and uh the uh the hindi translation was done in 59 um oh wow okay the english translation wasn't done until published until 73 mm. so it it went from sanskrit to hindi um hindi in 59 and then english in in 73 mm. did you find any author it is let me see uh written by the author is is named Pendit Subaraya Shastri and his born in 1866, died in 1940. And the source I'm looking at says he dictated it um between nineteen eighteen and nineteen twenty-three. And and one of my deeper sources when I looked into it um showed that it was originally written in nineteen oh eight. He didn't get around to dictating it to a, someone else until nineteen eighteen. Dictating. So, Yeah. Interesting. Was it like a channeling thing or Uh, who knows? (laughs) It could have been claimed to have been channeled. See, here's what I find interesting. The possibility that some real things got through and they were claimed to be channeled. Right. Um, now, why would someone do that? Well, what if you wanted to get information out there, but you you, you didn't yeah. want everybody to take it seriously, for example? Oh, you don't want scrutiny on the source, right? Yeah, you you, you don't want too much scrutiny, so it's easy to dismiss, right? If mm. they say, "Uh, yeah, 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 this was channeled," when actually, possibly, it was not channeled; it was mm. passed. So that's, an, that's uh, a that's a well known tactic, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah.
0: All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the paper link on our webpage. Thanks.
2: Now, one could argue, well, maybe the legend of the bell um, was fabricated from knowledge of this book that's possible mm-hmm. um i i did a little video report on my walter bosley channel at youtube um in the last year or so that talks about the bell mm-hmm. and uh talks about the argument that it's all a fabrication you know there there is some evidence for that this the existence of this book could be evidence for that when you um consider that the bell um the 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 you can trace it to the early or the the mid-late 1980s with a Dean Kuntz novel. Well, think about it. Um, where did he get the idea for the, essentially the bell that's in his novel Lightning? Um, by the late 80s, if this book was translated into English in 73, this Vimanika Shastra, the ideas could have been bouncing around out there, right? And mm-hmm. so someone could, you have to be fair, you have to say someone could have fabricated the whole Bell story because of the existence of this book and its concepts um, in English by 1973. Um, however, there is other evidence to suggest that the Bell story was not fabricated, as we know through the research of uh, um, Joseph Farrell and 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 others, um, what nick cook learned and and such yeah. but the problem with the original sourcing on it um is when you look closely there is identifiably uh opportunity for fabrication there so You're talking about a Polish guy. What's his name? Um, Uh, Igor Wachowski. Yeah, he could have been his source, not him, he himself. um, Mm -hmm. It could have been his source on it. His original source could have been. But I
1: I find it so, I mean, look at the skull of Bormann. The fabrication there is the debunking story, which gets all the air. Mm -hmm. And when you really look into it, because they, they offer a debunking version. Oh, it was, uh, oh, it was just, it was, it wasn't his right. skull after all. That. And then you look into that and you see that's the fabrication. It yeah. wouldn't surprise me if something like this happened too, because you have so much sure. contextual stuff. You have, for example, you have um, the fact that uh, they did. I mean, we know the Kamlerstab was real and that they had this mm-hmm. Area 51 thing going on there. Mm-hmm. We know they did uh, research exotic technology. Mind you, nuclear bombs were exotic that, at that time. But um, also we had our stuff, uh, and we also know they had the expertise for that. We had even this guy... Um, this natural uh, genius, who he wasn't officially a scientist or an academic, but he observed nature, and, mm-hmm. um, and Richard Dolan has touched one of his <laughs> UFOs. I guess we would call it a drone now, because you couldn't go into it.
2: Yeah. What on earth was his name? Um, oh, Schauberger. Schauberger Victor Schalberger, right? Yeah. Well, i I have a reason for thinking that the Bell story is not a fabrication, and um. I believe I talk about it in origin. Mm. And that is this. The Del Schau material was discovered in nineteen seventy-one, two years prior to the Vimonika Shastra being mm. published in English. Okay, now get this. I discovered in the Del Schau material the bell itself. There is Del Schau. Now Del Schau did his drawings of his books, his material, um between 1896 and 1913, I think is when Mm -hmm. he died. Okay. Mm -hmm. And in his drawings, there is the bell. It is a bell shaped device that is described as being the, the propulsion and energy source for these flying machines and i mean it's literally it shows the the central axis which the bell-shaped uh object apparatus rotates around mm. it is for all intents and purposes the bell and these drawings were done as i said um decades prior to when the german the, the german scientists would have been developing the bell yeah. so i personally think that uh, the, the the bell was a real pursuit a real thing and i it, believe it or not i i think it, we can trace its um roots back to the 1850s with the sonora aero club because somebody in that group most likely the man peter menes who was the leader of the group was knowledgeable of this concept and this idea, because there it is. There's Delshow um, essentially showing you the bell and describing the bell sometime between 1893 and 1913. And he's saying this was being used in the 1850s. Hmm. So um, that, of course, um, if true, completely um, eliminates this this notion that Nazi Germany captured a an extraterrestrial saucer in reverse engineered it. And that's how they got the bell and all this ridiculous stuff, which is all mm. post-war neo-Nazi propaganda. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah. Uh, are you familiar with the kegsberg? What's it called? Yes. Keg, yeah. The kegsberg UFO. Yeah. Look, they say it looks like an acorn, but it looks more like the bell. In fact, I go exactly. into that in origin. Of course, if you recall in my discussion um, at the SSP conference, I show, you know, clearly, and and I'm not the first guy to do it. I love to say that because it's not just independently coming from me. Other people mm. have pointed this out, that the bell, when you look at the design of the bell, the description of the bell, boy, it, it really, the Kexburg UFO just really comes across as maybe um, an American attempt, you know, in the 60s to develop. Yeah, but it, it did have uh, German writings on it, I think. Well, it had weird symbols on it that's yeah. for sure and those yeah. symbols if you go if you look up the Kexburg ufo online um uh, there is a model of it that the people in kexberg put up years ago and find that photo and that has the um the symbols that were around the base yeah um, i i don't know much about uh, that's something that i'm still kind of looking into mm. because i find that intriguing whatever these symbols were. You know, at one time people said, well, maybe it was Cyrillic Russian Mm. language, uh, the alphabet the Russians use. And um, but then when you see what allegedly are the symbols, um, I, you know, for for a little while in my life, I was a Russian linguist. Uh-huh. Um, Aha! <laughs> <laughs> nowhere near the native level, but good enough to be able to effectively do my job. So I'm familiar with the Cyrillic alphabet, and you know the symbols I have seen are not that.
1: Was it runes? It looked like then
2: it was something in... not, and not even runes. It, it, I would say this is what makes me lean towards a much more ancient, older tradition, mm-hmm. um, because it looks like something that. Um, might have led to, or been an element of the development of, say, the the, the ancient language of pre-documented India, or led no oh, to... proto-Sanskrit, yeah, proto-Sanskrit, that kind of thing, or 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 here's an even more intriguing possibility, some type of uh, what we would call ritual magic symbols mm, and uh, stuff like that yeah i find that possibility very intriguing mm. then we're back to channeling
1: mm. <laughs> yes <laughs> well speaking of proto-sanskrit um mm-hmm. you have this uh, guy close donor mm-hmm. for those who doesn't know uh I- i'm gonna get him on my show but he he got uh lots of attention uh Back in, when was it? Late 90s, early 2000s? Because he's been a collector. Mm-hmm. He's helped the billionaires with collections. And uh, he's mapped yes. a lot of uh, exclusive stuff. And uh, we're talking here prehistoric items, like the oldest items mm-hmm. uh, around. And uh, like I said in, in my uh, little rant there earlier, there's a lot of stuff that never sees the light of day in, in terms of the mm-hmm. public. Right. And so... Some of the stuff, and he has excellent analysis and pictures and everything. He's been analyzing the symbols and pictures uh, on it. And it seems that, I I hesitate to call it a language, but the closest you come to a language is Sanskrit. So they just refer to this as proto-Sanskrit. Now, what's interesting about it is that this is true for all the pre-Diluvian stuff, Mm -hmm. All the older stuff, and by the way, folks, I'll give a plug for Graham Hancock's new series on Netflix. You need to see that, and uh, because Hancock and 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 that gang, of course, makes an excellent argument for that there was a global civilization, but it was it was also, of course, people living as hunter gatherers. Even today, there are right. So it's not like an either or thing, and. They may have then used a similar language. Remember what this? You know, for example, in the Bible, they say that uh, after the Tower of Babel, we mm-hmm. uh, we first had one language, and then it all got divided up. Right. Mm-hmm. So, if if people were advanced enough to go to the stars, and and you know, Hoagland's research and many others, it does indicate, does suggest uh, that. And myths and legends and even textual things that isn't even legends, but they insist it's true <laughs> back in the day, mm-hmm. say that we did these things. So if, if we can speculate that we reached that level of, of, um, advancement that we could have uh, anti gravity, then even, even if they had different languages, just like today, English has more or less become a global language, mm-hmm. you would have something similar back then. And that mm-hmm. could uh, account for. Why all over the world these old items had similar symbols. Now, then we fast forward to the Kegsberg and other similar mm-hmm. suspicious UFOs with, with these weird language, because it's not the first UFO with a weird language on it. Right. <laughs> that's, that's very common, right? Yes. So if you take it all the way then, um, if some of these cousins of ours are coming back, right, you know, yes, you, you would expect something that looks Earthly, but can't be exactly identified as one particular
2: language. Well, Follow my thread. Yeah, and and remember too, we have Delshad, who very famously wrote. Uh, I say famously; those familiar with Delshad's material will know um, that he wrote with this weird um, symbolic code alphabet. Oh, yeah, And that's e- right. e- even the organization Nimza, which he he put in the the english alphabetical letters right he actually would also spell that out in the weird symbols like weird symbols his his code symbols um and so uh much of the translation of his coded writings came from him giving that little hint and others as far as uh, breaking the code of his little secret alphabet so you got to ask yourself okay what why was he doing that look what he was involved with look at these concepts we're talking about was this code based on something he learned from the sonora aero club guys were they using these symbols and were they using the ancient language that we're talking about
1: yeah it could be it could be a homage but it could also be very practical because remember They, the, uh, hand in hand with esoteric current goes another kind of mm-hmm. tech, uh, expertise. And that's mm-hmm. cryptology. Mm-hmm. It's been closely. Th- this is what actually makes the Intel, uh, world and the occult world overlap. This is it. It's not about conspiracies. It's about this mm-hmm. <laughs> because the Intel world has always had this interest and esoteric has always, I, I would say, at least since the uh, 1400s. And uh, you, a figure like John Dee, for example, he was a spook (laughs) of that Mm -hmm. day, of course, and he was an occult genuine occultist. So, these um, secret languages has been popular. So, and if you have something exclusive, something hot, whether it's a spiritual secret or something as mundane as a technology, you need to cover it up in absolutely right, absolutely. Yeah, so that makes sense. Now. uh, is there more to, to glean from the German connection, Nazi connection? You said you had a theoretically lead. Um, is there more to say? Well, I, I, I,
2: I, and, and I've laid it out in the books. I've, that's the one that I have fleshed out in the books. The mystery mm. is what happened to the American group now um, in recent Last couple of years, I found uh, real interesting possibilities with um, the Cosmos Club research that uh, Daniel List has been doing because I have an origin contact, too connection to the Cosmos Club Samuel Tillman who was identified as one of the crewmen on one of the airship mystery airships um, of the 1890s he was a documented member of this Cosmos Club uh, back back up here
1: uh, not everyone is familiar with the Cosmos Club mm-hmm. could you give a brief
2: outline of that first the Cosmos Club was a, is a uh, private organization that I believe led to the um, creation of the National Geographic Society here in the States mm. but it It was a group of explorers, um, scientists, engineers, um, you know, wealthy financiers, that kind of thing, um, and several military members. Um, There's a big navy connection to it, and Samuel. What what time frame are we talking about here? Oh, it 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 began in um, uh, I don't have the exact year in front of me. The 19th century is when it was founded and they were part of a lot of, um, uh, the backing of, um, expeditions and such. It, uh, like I said, it led to the national cosmos Club. club. It was found. Oh, okay. It was founded by John Wesley Powell. I knew that, but in 1878, so a little later than I was thinking, um, it started as a gentleman's club for those interested in science. And it, uh, really became very influential among uh, explorers and researchers and the like. And there definitely has been um, a Navy and uh, military connection here. Yes. So um, uh, the Cosmos Club had uh, members of the Philosophical Society, which there you go the guys that are you know we know about the philosopher scientists right yeah. they were the guys who were much more well rounded and and took a, a big picture you know, let's kind of understand what this stuff is. We're understanding, as opposed to the the era of the specialist, which actually, in Western professional science and academic science, really kicked off in 1830 when the Royal Society, the um, specialist uh, members of the Royal Society, finally outnumbered the philosopher scientists. Mm-hmm. Who several of them hated those guys. Yeah. Uh, and um I think it was jealousy. Mm-hmm. And but they finally outnumbered the philosopher scientists, who by the way were among, you know, were the kind of guys who founded the thing. Yeah. And um from that day forward, Western professional and academic science really went the direction of the specialist. Well, what do we lose when we focus on being a specialist? We lose a sense of where um our understanding of a particular thing, you know, our specialty fits in with the big picture and you could have a whole discussion on if that was done by design i i lean towards that Mm. because if you have a bunch of disconnected specialists no one's really going to know theoretically what the big picture is and if you got people who don't want someone knowing the big picture there you go
1: Compartmentalization Um, of
2: science. Yeah. Yeah. So Cosmos club was the kind of organization where you had guys that, yeah, they were specialists, but they were, they were of the ilk that was more interested in, okay, I understand my specialty. This guy understands his, she understands hers. How do we bring this knowledge together to really figure out what's going on in our world, our reality and such. Mm -hmm. So what happens there is when you pursue those questions, that's going to lead you to some of the the wilder aspects of nature and reality, right so mm-hmm. you're you're gonna you're gonna learn some of those wild secrets of uh space and <laughs> history
1: yeah, this reminds me of the nine. Are you familiar with them sure yeah, so they they were also it sounds like it's from the same circles, and what's interesting with them and they have some counterparts in Germany, although I think some of those Germany versions may be fabrications like Maria Ortsik and those. But mm-hmm. what's interesting is in both of these are said to channel practical stuff, Yeah, you know, not just mm-hmm. peace and love, but, you know, practical stuff.
2: Yeah. Any comment to that? Well, as I said before, when we were talking about this, um, that channeling the
1: channeling may maybe be a, a red herring
2: it, it could have been a a, a cover a ruse mm. for the the passing of uh, you know actual information yeah. um so yeah because because it's very rare
1: you can find channeling with uh, you know something tangible something
2: practical the issue yeah the issue i have with the popular notion of of channeling i i'm somebody who comes from the perspective of I don't have problem a problem with um, paranormal mm. uh, phenomena, so-called paranormal phenomena. I don't have a problem with the concepts that you find in the discussion of the paranormal. Okay, I think there's something to the reality of these kinds of things. Where I'm coming from is I don't buy every claim mm. um, to the paranormal. Okay, so mm-hmm. I'm kind of the uh, a skeptical ally. I don't want to say the word believer, but, um, <laughs> you know, for practical purposes, yeah, I'm kind of the skeptical believer. It's like, yeah, I'm open to these esoteric things, but not everybody out there claiming to channel and not everybody out there claiming this, that and the other telling the truth and so we have to be you know really cautious and and for me channeling is one of those things that very often just gets abused yeah. by charlatans and mm. con artists um but no it would be excellent as a means of um sharing or or transferring actual you know, um, solid data and esoteric information in a way that only those who really care or know would take seriously. You know, the idea is to not throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? The bathwater yeah. being the theatrical claim to channeling. The the, the the nugget is the information and what's in it. Mm. That's what matters. Mm.
1: Now, origin, I'm assuming that's not just r- referencing the Pre-flight period of the airships. Um, assuming you're actually pointing all the way back to the a- a ancient world,
2: right? Right. I well, I think that the information, the whole thing suggests that we're talking about um, a, uh, a, a an esoteric philosopher-scientist culture who um, had uh, some time way back. Uh, Somebody had gotten their hands on this information, this what we would call lost technology of a forgotten civilization and had worked to develop it. You had, you know, in France, the um, Angelic Society, of course, which many believe was a group that uh, influenced Jules Verne, that Jules Mm. Verne was actually writing about real things so to speak, you know, or or things that were actually being pursued. Um, that's just one example. So um, I, I think by the time you get to NIMSA, yeah, this is just the German, it, A, let's say A, not the only, but A German variant of this idea of you got your hands on esoteric information. What are you going to do with it? Let's develop it and apply it in a practical way. And these individuals happen to be, you know, uh, uh, Prussian enthusiasts, right, of mm. the uh pre-unification era, who were big nationalists. And that's what they were applying their knowledge and their um development of this these ancient ideas to. Um and and then of course, what they were developing in the nineteenth century, I argue, leads into what ultimately Appears to be developed by the mid 20th century going into our times, you know, mm. the people, it, it, the whole thing about um, like what the Wright brothers uh, developed in, in aerospace technology, you know, airplanes flight that we know of. That was the more immediate practical application right with with a basically what a combustion type engine and you know it's okay that that works that works but what was really being pursued by these other more um esoterically inclined groups was something more advanced than just the airplane as we know it Mm -hmm. and um i think that because we went through two world wars and we went through all sorts of other weird Political things going on in the world, um, the the development of these things got delayed beyond what was being what could be applied immediately for war efforts, um, and then after World War II, um, they picked it up again mm. and uh, continued pursuing it in our lifetimes, you know, and up till now. This this is my big overview of mm. this stuff. So no nowhere in there is a crashed flying saucer from another world being reverse <laughs> engineered.
1: <laughs> no, but but it isn't unthinkable that it's not just scriptures. It could be some piece of tech yeah. they came over uh, in. Because uh, yeah. remember, we're talking about a time period where suddenly another en thing was excavations. Yeah. You know, archaeology mm-hmm. g- yeah. came to its right and someone may have stumbled over something and you can bet that that will not come out in the public uh, if it's Right. like a real piece of... that something private uh, networks would
2: get. A it's on. like you said, he who pays for the excavation, you yeah. know, gets to keep what's found, right? Or at yeah. least controls what is found. And I think, you know, there's another discussion we could have for hours on, on the shenanigans <laughs> with archaeology.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I, I, Hancock does a brilliant job exposing them in his new Netflix series, Ancient Apocalypse. But Excellent if you if they find something uh, that can be reverse engineered and then you, you must sure. say it's a no uh, it's an it's a local it's a earthly origin
2: i wouldn't be surprised if that has been If this, if maybe the rumor of reverse engineering actually perhaps Mm. ties to that as opposed to extraterrestrial, right? Mm. I mean, now I don't buy that the Nazi scientists got their hands on an extraterrestrial vehicle that the you know that crashed from outer space and they reverse engineered, but I could be open to a discussion on did their archaeologists find mm. a vimana so to speak and that's what they were you know mm-hmm. and and actually was this when you think of Nimza and what we've been talking about could the Nimsa group in the early yeah. 19th or late 18th century have found the vimana and what was being done with the Sonora Aero Club and then with Solomon Andrews and the American group in the 1890s could this have been a result of knowledge of that vimana technology having been found? Especially in South
1: America, Uh uh, could be a hot spot for that. Uh, So many pyramids, many cavities, Mm -hmm. God knows. But uh, the interesting thing is that um, we're also talking a time period where they were, um, yeah, they were researching uh, around the world. They were Mm -hmm. having these rich people of these societies who were interested in, in that stuff. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have to be like a full-fledged Vimana because if this had happened in the 1600s or 1700s, it would probably just be a weird thing on display or something. Sure. But this was in the 1800s and people underestimate how technically advanced we were back then. I mean, it was steampunk period and everything. Mm -hmm. So, they would have enough knowledge to understand this is technology. It's not something... Uh, like that, God manifested. But well, you, you maybe hang on. But maybe not enough knowledge to downright reverse engineer it. That would have taken a long time to. Uh, so maybe an airship, some kind of airship, would be their first step in that direction.
2: Well, interesting. You know, you you were asking me about any new developments. Yeah. And um, I did discover something, come across something that I didn't know before. And that was that there was a method of propulsion that was developed and published in 1849. Okay, mm-hmm. And that was the year before Del Chaux said talks about the Sonora Aero Club existing. Mm. And gosh, let me see. I've got the uh let, let me let me get the guy's name for you because yep. it's it's very important. Yeah. And I look at it as um a very important aspect of this. Let me grab it. Boy,
1: 1849. That's far back.
2: Oh my gosh. I thought I had it out there. I think I've got it right here. I'm, I, <laughs> I apologize, but this this is a very good point if I can find what I did with that copy of that book. Well, I'll be darn it's not sitting here i what i wanted to tell you about was the name of the author and i want to say uh racine but i'm not sure that's right i apologize i don't have the book right in front of me what 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 language what what country are we talking about here he was one of the two the, he was the associate of one of the the guys who he was one of the guys who developed the the uh, study of the law of thermodynamics oh okay okay so, um, and he's the one who came up with this method of propulsion that he does he, he uh published a diagram of how this works, mm. and it is identical to what Dell Sha draws as mm. the, the apparatus of propulsion and power of the Sonora, Sonora Aero Club airships. Hmm. And so therefore, what am I saying? What I'm saying is this suggests that there's very much an earthly uh development of whatever ancient might have been found. Um, but because it's so virtually identical to what Del Shall claims the Sonora era club did, again, to be fair and honest, we have to we have to admit that, well, maybe Del Shall made this up. And use this Racine method, if I'm getting the the name right. Mm. But, you know, so this is something that I didn't know at the time that I wrote this book. Mm. And I I see it as um, kind of a... Very uh, suspicious. Well, it it was a breakthrough um, in knowledge for me because, you know, I like to... um, connect the dots yeah i like yeah. yeah yeah i i like to be accurate i like to present the best I, you know the most accurate information that i can i don't like to be willy-nilly with um this stuff you know sure sure so. but uh, i had
1: um i'm doing a series called um, man tesla man of light with canadian stacy james and we're going through we went through i've already um for my members, uh, my web subscribers. They already can Uh hear part one. But one thing that struck me when we went through the history of electrical engineering, because the Mm -hmm. first two episodes is not about Tesla, it's about everyone who came before him, because Tesla is just the peak of a wave. Right. It's not like like he came out of nowhere. So, but what struck me when he went through person after person, although these are very like hands-on people, practical people, engineers, Mm -hmm. right? Um, they would be best defined as these philosopher-scientists because so many of them were into different kinds of mysticism and esotericism. And one of them was involved with the Rosetta Stone, for example. So Mm -hmm. I I find that link between these early 1800s engineers who lifted civilization Mm -hmm. and their interest in stuff like esoteric, spiritualism, ancient stuff, mm-hmm. I find that highly interesting. Oh, yes. I, I, I don't think that's a coincidence to put it like that. Later comes these nuts and bolts guys, these compartmentalist guys, these social specialists, eggheads who who doesn't seem that We have, I don't know if this expression translates, but we have an expression saying you can't see the mm-hmm. uh, forest for the trees. Mm-hmm. You understand the meaning? Do you have yes. that in English? Yeah. Oh, so yes. oh yeah. It, th- that's how they are operating, right? They are uh, sure.
2: na- naval gazers. Yeah, that, they are what I call the bean counters. In, in such. By, <laughs> yes, by the way, yes. in the interest of being accurate here, I pulled up my research on this. The gentleman's name was Macorn Rankin, not Racine, Rankine, R-A-N-K-I-N-E. Weird name. Frenchman? Yeah, I, I I think he I no he he might have been Scottish. I'm not sure, but he was wow. a fa- he was one of the founders of the field of thermodynamics. Mm. And what he came up with was the Rankin Turbin turbine turbine. Mm. So if you look at the Rankin turbine, it is virtually identical to what Del Shau, um claims Peter Menace applied to the uh, Sonora Aero Club arrows flying machines um, a year after. Rankin published this and his diagram and everything. Uh, you, you know what
1: your next uh, task is going to be, right? What's that? Finding a connection between uh,
2: Rankin and the leader of the club. That's exactly. <laughs> and that's exactly where I'm going with that. And by the way, here's the thing. Just because it doesn't mean Delsha was making this up. Just because we essentially have the Rankin turbine turbine, sorry, the Rankin turbine engine process in these alleged flying arrows um it doesn't mean del shout was making that up um it could be that menace liked the process remember the secret to what menace was doing was the fuel he used Mm. so it could it looks like what menace did was um use the uh, rankin turbine but his own special fuel Mm. that resulted in it made the flight apparatus work Um, what fuel
1: did rankin use? do you know
2: i don't think i uh off the top of my head i think it was what uh, i think it was would it have been a water or something because Mm. this was in 1849 he published it and I'm guessing it could have been developed for steam.
1: Yeah, there has the People looked um, in. Yeah, people did look into water back then. But uh, uh, you were talking about the connection. Was it between Dell Show or, or was it between Nimsa and the Cosmos Club? I, I asked you to first elaborate on the, oh, the Cosmos um, Club.
2: Uh, uh Colonel Samuel Tillman, mm-hmm. who one of the witnesses of the uh, an airship of the 1890s airship mystery, had a conversation with and identified uh, the guy identified himself as Samuel Tillman mm-hmm. and uh, he, was a member of the Cosmos Club. That's a matter of record. And Mm. um, I argue, of course, that the connection between the Sonora Aero Club, in my opinion, um, and the 1890s airship mystery is very likely that after the dissolution of the Sonora Aero Club in California in the 1850s, um, one or more of them, might have gone on to be an an associate of Solomon Andrews, who demonstrated his flying machine to Lincoln's war cabinet. Now, I hypothesize largely, I'm going way out on that limb of speculation, as our friend Dr. Farrell says. Um, and I argue the possibility that after the Civil War, that the development of Andrews flying machine technology may have been America's first black technology project and 25 years later or so results in this 1890s airship mystery. Mm. And there you go, as far as explaining Samuel Tillman's connection to it, because Tillman was a career lifelong army officer who was a scientist he he was a specialist in uh what thermodynamics and chemistry, and um he was also a cartographer mm. and i I go in in the book I go into why that suggests what I'm talking about, a, a, a black technology project developing flying machines um, in the uh, Western United States between uh, 1865 and, and 30 years later, the 1890s, with this uh, airship mystery. Hmm. Um, it's It's all suggestive. It's hypothetical. But it's really intriguing when you look at the context of what was going on. And you look at the the people identified as being involved. Yeah, of course. Uh,
1: uh, last time I had you on
2: for this topic,
1: we discussed the name NIMSA. By the way, I've seen it uh, spelled different ways
2: lately. W- w- what is your current? Um, well, I'm take on the it? one. I'm the guy who, uh, with, with uh, the help of um, people that are more adept at the German language. And our friend Joseph Farrell as well. I'm the guy, if you see the uh, NJMZ, lowercase a, that also is from my book Origin. That was a spelling that Joseph Farrell suggested Mm. was the more, uh, because I argue the NYMZA spelling that Delshaw gives us was a transliteration, right? Americanization, yeah. Yeah, an act of an acronym. Mm. So, if you're going to uh, attempt to translate what Nimsa meant, and I I come up with a possibility, I admit it's hypothetical, mm-hmm. based on the details and the context, and then you 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 do that in English, and then you translate that into German. Well, your the letters of your acronym are going to change, and and the njmz lowercase a is one suggested possibility of a translation via transliterate transliteration via translation i remind you what that stands for oh boy oh this is this is (laughs) oh my gosh this is the worst question let me see i I usually have this marked yeah but um, i mean i
1: mean uh, translated at least English.
2: Well, I like to. I, I like to. Yikes! I like to read it out because right. um, it, uh, it, it it's the national. Uh, n- I'm sorry, the nationalist, mm. which we know there's a difference between national and nationalist, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. The nationalist. Um, exp- what is it? Ex- the the nationalist exploration or exploratory airship organization agency department so to speak Wow, if that if that makes sense is is um that's off the uh, the top of my head pro, 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 <laughs> properly, <laughs>
1: properly german bureaucratic name
2: <laughs> Alrighty, here here we go i've got it i've got it right here um my translation is to your
1: defense you didn't know what we were going to discuss before i called you up (laughs) (laughs) um
2: now i have the well now Gosh darn, Rudy. I, and it is a long time since
1: you've delved into this. So,
2: Yeah, this is seven years since I wrote this book and did this. Now, I do have the mission statement that I – now, this is all hypothetical. NIMSA is, I think, a distinctly Prussian nationalist organization dedicated to a unified Germany's global superiority in active pursuit of influence and exploitation of the natural resources and industry of the Americas. Yeah. Um, and here, here's what I got. I came down to the Nationalist Pursuit Exploration, um, that's hyphenated, Airship Program Office. That's my best mm. hypothetical translation. Um, now, in German, I'm going to really chop this up. I apologize <laughs> to all the German speakers. <laughs> the Nationalistisch Jagdflugzeug maschinen Ah, that makes sense in Norwegian, too. Yeah, that's where the N J M Z lowercase A comes from. Hmm. Yoga we would say in Norwegian. Yeah, yeah, yog mm-hmm. <laughs> And believe me, I'm not a German <laughs> linguist. I had help with that from people who. Speak German. Now, I've even had German speakers come at me and say, Oh, that's garbage. Well, you're talking to idiots. While I had actual Germans saying, No, no, that's, that's right. So, (laughs) Mm, you know, um...
1: it's, I mean, but this is a a, a detour because uh, what I wanted to get at was Uh another contextual piece of uh, musing, which adds a puzzle piece here for, for people who, who need to know the context. And that's that Germany. Back then mm-hmm. was, you're very right that they were pursuing, like everyone else, uh, it was this geopolitical fight that we see going on even today. And mm-hmm. back then, Germany was allied with the Ottoman Empire. Yeah. And the Ottoman Empire had their hands on the hot spots, like mm-hmm. the Middle East, Jerusalem, all that stuff, and Egypt. Mm-hmm. And so, the Germans had a deal with the Sultan and that was that they would uh, develop uh, the railway. Mm-hmm. They got that contract. There is a reason the World War War came and everybody, you know, there were different factions and they all uh, joined, uh, the Allied joined to crush Ottomans and Germany because they were becoming too a threat to, to their agenda too powerful in in many ways. So they wanted to dismantle the Ottoman Empire, uh, which they Mm -hmm. managed, and they also wanted to crush the Germans. Now the interesting thing is, Mm -hmm. if these people were Germans back then, then they would know that they were under siege. And they would need to keep this under wraps, if nothing else, than for geopolitical reasons. Now back then uh, Egypt especially was in vogue. Mm-hmm. Everybody, they made up stories, even since the 1700s, actually all the way back to the mm-hmm. Renaissance, about, oh, I've been in the pyramids, oh, I was initiated into something mystical. So it's it's very feasible to imagine that German explorations, which there were plenty of mm-hmm. there, could have found something mm-hmm. in Egypt which was under sure. uh, Ottoman control. Why am I singling out Egypt? We know that Germans were fond of... Uh, exploring. The Nazis did it too all over the world, right? Not just in South right. America where they had connections, Tibet. Right. I'm saying Egypt for two reasons. Number one, mm-hmm. Nimsa, phonetically, Sounds like an Egyptian reference. Now, when people sure make does. up, right, and when people make up names like this, uh-huh. they often want to, especially if they're esoterics, they want to have these multi-levelled. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, it den- it may denote what you said on the trivial level, yeah. but they also want a callback, or homage to uh, wherever the, uh, yes. the source is, right? And here's the punchline of my speculation. Uh-huh. You told me last time it means. somehow it's connected to the nameless one. Yes. And that's Um, an Egyptian reference.
2: Yes. And that, I I present that in Origin and also Empire of the Wheel 3, the nameless ones. And um, so, yes, the, the Nimza, aside from the... You know German organization in the nineteenth century that that del Shaw was talking about when you're talking about these esotericists exactly they it 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 wouldn't be a surprise if they selected if they designed and engineered a name that accurately described who and what they were and what they were doing, but also at the same time, like Egyptian hieroglyphs, right had mm. that double meaning that mm. double those those multiple levels, as you said of of meaning. That would also refer back to maybe, as I think you're suggesting, where they may have found yes, some of this exactly. technology. And I'm glad you brought this up with the whole Ottoman Empire connection. And then, of course, Egypt, um, because in my secret mission series, I I got into this with Napoleon. But in my uh, probably what's well, what's going to be secret mission six, um, I'm not wow. going to reveal that here, but that's going to delve into the Ottoman Empire in the mix in all of this because of the individual I'm I'm writing about and will be writing about in his connections, because um, it uh, will lead me into that part of this, which I haven't really mind Yet, so to speak. Um, oh, it's a gold mine, the
1: Ottoman yeah. Empire. Uh, you know, the Piri Rice map. We have a, right. a fight between Rothschilds and uh, Sultan right. Hamid. Right. And
2: I think in pursuing this individual, I'll be writing about, um, you know, already I'm aware of the roads leading to the Ottoman Empire on yeah. this pursuit of knowledge. Even
1: Crowley went there.
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in his young so it's, it's, age. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because that's kind of the direction that I'm already on my way to. So uh, Okay. We, we'll have you back for yeah, sure. Uh, and, and in
1: fact, we'll have you back also for uh, the... Uh, you were talking about your serious... Let's see here. Uh, I, I told you before, it's so hard to find... All your secret. books in one list, but uh, you have two series, your secret mission uh-huh. your empire of the wheel. Yes. So this is, okay, so this book you're talking about now with the Ottoman Empire is a part of the secret missions.
2: Uh, it will be. Yeah, it is. This in it, it, the individual whom it's about. Yeah, that's it's going to be in the secret mission series. It, it will be secret missions six. I have to go back and finish volume two of number four, which is the esoteric <laughs> Napoleon. And uh. um, then I will jump into this uh, number six. This, this is long overdue for me. This individual has popped up in my research and interests for um some years now, so it it's time that i uh yeah, finally yeah. took a dive into it and um yeah well,
1: yeah my- t- mm-hmm.
2: yeah go on i I just will get to that. I was gonna tell you where everything could be found as far as my catalog goes. yeah, let's hear oh um i I have um a new website that's uh, being put together it's uh, my the name of my publishing company. The main head masthead is Lost Continent Library. So at lostcontinentlibrary.com, there's a link to Walter Bosley. I think it's walterbosley.com. And uh, anyway, it links to there, and all my books will be available at the one site. Now, they're still sold through lulu.com um exclusively but if you all all your books i've seen some on amazon and some on um if you see anything on amazon it's um, probably just a couple of kindle editions that i keep alive and maybe people reselling you know an edition or something i'm a small press guy and as you know i made the conscious decision not to sell um, via amazon because it's just not uh, profitable for a small press guy
1: no You're supporting the empire of evil there. (laughs) But uh, while we are at your book, so we have covered um, number two, uh, Sir
2: Richard Francis Burton.
1: Uh But next time I have you on, I think we should Uh cover number, is it number one, the one about the Templars?
2: Yeah, and Juan Cabrillo, yes, absolutely. That's number one, okay. That would be fascinating to talk about I love it
1: yeah I, I just need to read up on it before okay. that so uh, I suggest uh, when um, you know I'm up here in the dark north and it's getting darker by by the minute but um, when uh, the sun is turned and uh, spring is in the air I suggest uh-huh. we hook up again and let's do by it then I'll try to have familiar myself with your book secret missions the hidden legacy of old California Alrighty, that's the one now before we part here, and we're coming up on the top of the hour, as one says, uh-huh. it's yeah we have four four and a half minutes left. Um, mm-hmm. You have made your presence known on YouTube.
2: Yes, direct people there. Uh, the Walter Bosley channel at YouTube. It's easy to find, and I do a live stream uh, Sunday nights um, at six p.m. Pacific Standard Time and um, I have just recently um changed things around to where I can now do interviews myself have guests and oh, nice. Uh, I've done that uh a, a couple of times already since starting this three weeks ago, and there are also some of my um little documentary videos posted there that you can catch up on, including the one in which I talk about McCorn Rankin and the turbine the turbine and um uh what we were talking about today with the Dell Shell stuff Mm. and and many other topics plus some of the past um live shows that I have done. So will will you podcast this stuff too or exclusively YouTube? Oh um I'm exploring expanding um other uh platforms. Right now it's only I'll give you a hot tip. Yeah? Because this takes no effort. Uh Uh, Two
1: platforms that we anyway should support just out of uh, principle is uh, Odyssey and Rumble. And the brilliant thing with those two is that you don't have to lift a finger. You register a channel, Uh then you use their... Uh, service which is that you can transfer all your YouTube stuff oh. automatically there without having to lift a
2: finger yeah. it
1: and then it will be hosted there too so that if YouTube deletes you uh-huh. which
2: very may well be in the cards eventually yeah, you never know these days then
1: you have uh, have it
2: there and you haven't re uploaded anything it's just I like that yeah I like it I think I'll yeah. take your advice because uh, you know I am my new uh, webmaster uh, I guess if you still call them that um, <laughs> you know we're exploring where else I, I, I need to be, and I think that's on the list. So uh, Absolutely. by the time we talk again, I probably will be uh, quite expanded out. Mm. So, Sounds good, man. Sounds good.
1: Oh, I see you've been on Laura London's show.
2: Yep. <laughs> yep. What,
1: what, what on earth does this have to do with Young?
2: Um, <laughs> Was he involved? Well, the, the show we did where we discuss a film that I'm working on and the film that i've already done um prior to this one uh it was it was an excellent discussion and uh because the the, the story is just purely metaphorical drawn from esoteric um uh, books sources and um so that was really good but we we had a conversation recently that um I didn't really cover what we what I intended us to cover. We were going to be talking about Joshua Cutchin's book, the uh Ecology of Souls and specifically the uh topic of UFOs and the dead. Hmm. And um we we really didn't cover it the way I had hoped to. So the and I don't know if i take the blame for that i, I should have driven the uh, discussion better than i did i was hoping that the jungian perspective on ufos and the dead would make for a fascinating discussion mm. talking about what was in the book but we did we didn't get there so no. that was kind of disappointing
1: that's a problem with uh, authors like you you've you've been like farrell actually you've been all over the place right so if someone has <laughs> you in one show yeah. and and and, and it, it, if is a quality show it's bound to go a little deeper than just touch it's not uh, coast to coast right so then bam <laughs> suddenly the clock is up on you but you know yeah. which show you should go on if you haven't been mm-hmm. there yet he richard is. hoagland's show because your stuff oh is i pretty- have
2: oh you have been in, in okay. fact funny thing is that's where i met laura london because she was right. um, kind of working as his producer for a while and she's the one that scheduled me on his show um ah, yeah
1: she was a uh, um sure. what you say a stand-in not a stand-in but right um, yeah when someone is on vacation yeah the real producer is um
2: sit C- or can, can
1: oh yeah, we- yeah 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 she's the real she's the boss i'm thinking of uh, my friend who is such a good friend that i forgot his name andrew okay
2: <laughs> oh yes andrew andrew i've heard her <laughs> mention yeah yeah so i've been on uh, richard's show a couple of times actually over the years okay. but not recently no Okay, but we can
1: reminisce uh, later. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I suggest we go. Let's do it. Mm. Okay, uh, we'll stay in touch then. Two minutes yes. left before the gong uh, knocks us out. So um, I guess I'll just uh, I'll just say, is there anything else, by the way, you want to plug at the
2: end here? Um, no, just uh, again, uh, check out the You can go directly to lulu.com to check out the books. Um mm. You know, or lostcontentlibrary.com. dot com, but uh, also I uh, I've got an interesting uh, TV opportunity in development. So hopefully, uh, fingers crossed, that's nice. going to come about. Yeah, yeah.
1: Because you are a, let, let's not
2: forget you are a filmmaker also. So I do like to make my little films, but yeah. th- this would be a, a documentary series that I'm hoping hoping we get the green light. We're oh. waiting right now. I think uh, Hancock is spearheading, um, you know, uh,
1: this kind of stuff. So, um, oh, yeah, fingers crossed. Okay. Yes, yeah. thank you. Yeah. Okay, and thank you for coming on today. It was uh, a sure. jolly good chat. Excellent. Well, thank you for having me. I,
2: I always, always enjoy talking with yeah. you.
1: Yeah. I'm so happy you're back in business, man, and that your health is good.
2: Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, and I'm just, just plugging away, you know, just got to keep yeah. going forward.
1: I'll send you the links uh, when there's something to okay. send, okay? Okay, great. Uh, Look forward to as, it. But as, as always, be patient. We, we use some
2: time. No problem. You, you send them to me, and then I'll spread the word when it's time.
1: Excellent. Okay, have a nice uh, day now.
2: All right, you too. Yeah, yeah, bye. Bye-bye.
1: Now, as we touched briefly in the show... There is an argument for a natural development of this exotic science without any help from our ancestors or from ancient or current aliens, etc. Now, not denying necessarily neither that they exist, uh, but nor that they have may have helped. I mean, those are two different matters. Uh, If they really are that advanced, I don't expect them to see it. It's this prime directive of Star Trek, which is pretty brilliant, actually. I think that's going to be the the norm for any advanced civilization encountering a primitive like ours. It's like what we, we, we leave, still we leave some... People in the bushes alone, like there's tribes in in Asia and in South America that hasn't been. And there's forbidden by law to interfere with them. Now, that would be even more so if, you know, if they're aggressive or even can be posed a threat. So this prime directive is to never interfere. I mean, you see even photographers doing that in nature. You know, oh, can't he help that poor gazelle? No, no, it's nature. We have to, we just here to observe. Right. So I think that's a universal, it, it goes back to universal ethics. There's so many, I, I'm not even going to argue and explain for those who don't get that. I, I think most get it. You, you just don't interfere like that. Uh, free will, you have to raise up by yourself, uh you may say ah the deep state and blah, blah blah why can't they interfere and free us so we can well we have to do it ourselves if we can't get our own house in order if we really are that dumb and stupid that we are being ruled by psychopaths and they ruin the world we are not we don't have the right of life we are not qualified to, to spread around. We will become viruses. But anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm rambling myself away from the point. So, from the 1800s, and we, by the way, we just did a show on the history of um, electric engineering. And yeah, some of this stuff is, is mentioned there too. And, and you'll also see that in the history of alchemy, etc. So, there is, it started with people developing a thing, and then a bigger thing, and then yet a deeper thing, and eventually we got there. And if you go back to some of my shows with Joseph Farrell, you'll hear or discuss that. He he mentioned some details. So, I don't know about these back-engineered programs. Look, if we left a car uh, among the Stone Agers... What do you think would happen? Would they start back-engineering it? I think they would start worshipping it as a cargo cult. We may have crashed retrievals, but I think it's very limited what we can do about it if, indeed, it is like super-advanced aliens from other distant systems. If they're from distant systems, man, it's going to be advanced. Now, if it is humans. Crash retrievals from humans, that's an entirely different matter. And it annoys me to no end in these soft declosure times that people only think, okay, is this human or is it non-human? Now, if it's non-human, people tend to think, of course, aliens, but they're also open for other things like time travel, interdimensional. But when they come to human, the only thing they can think of is states. Oh, is it China? Is it Russia? Is it ours? Says most Americans. Come on, it's not a country. There's no country who... I mean, there may be, of course, classified intel sections within a government that knows something or is involved or has access, etc. But above anything, especially in the West, it's private. It's private networks. Like uh, Walter said, uh, breakaway groups or breakaway networks. Now, Joseph and some others has argued that there is a survival of the Nazis who has played with these toys. <laughs> you can see the extreme cartoon version in the movies, what was it called? Um, Iron Sky, you know, Nazis at the moon. But the principle remains sound that there are private groups. They are fascist, whether they directly is descendant from the Nazis or not. They may, of course, be Descended from the American Deep State, which was Nazified. Uh, and I, at any rate, it's corporatism, it's Nazis. And yeah, you will find uh, that they are involved in companies like Lockheed and Boeing and all these. There are sections of private uh, groups, of covert, what you say classified levels within these hugely powerful military-industrial complex hubs. And so, we'll we'll get more to that in future programs. I hope to get Michael Schrat back. If any of you have access to him, uh, do nag. Uh, I'm going to discuss this with Joseph Farrell. Because we pressed, right? Uh, it's the disclosure times we're living in. And anyone else I would be lucky to get on. It's very hard to get on, big guests, you know. I wish I could discuss it once more with Dolan. And Stephen Greer, man, I would love to discuss with him. But at least we got David Cerida on and that was useful and good timing because whatever you think of him, and especially if you're not into the spiritual aspect, you can easily isolate that because that's on you, right? You you don't share his paradigm. Look, if I wanted news about, let's say, a football match, would I inquire the messenger what his beliefs were? Wa- was? What, which party he voted, which uh, gender he identifies with, <laughs> do you have a keto diet, etc. I don't care. I want to know what you can teach me about this thing. That should be our attitude to anyone and everyone. Was it Plato? Someone said everybody's a genius just on different matters. So, whatever you think of David's uh, spiritual side, and it goes the other way too, by the way. If, if you're a fan of that part of his, but not, uh, nuts and bolts, then fine. Ignore that. But whatever you do think of that, I'm telling you, man, he knows his stuff when it comes to vibrations. So check out our show with him on that. But, uh, as me and Bosley discussed today, Nimsa, German group, nationalists, I actually don't think there was a direct lineage from them to the Nazis. I'm not sure what Walter thinks about it. I see he has an upcoming book that seems to go into that. But I I don't think it's like a direct. I think it's an indirect, if anything. If it was a direct, they would have this ready already before the Second World War. It seems to me they got it late in the war. Or who knows when they got it, but they they had a breakthrough then. And, you know, how, how long should we give them before they manage to do something with it? certainly five years should be enough so what i think happened because i know this from the occult aspect of history is that germany now it's france but germany used to be the occult capital of europe before the second world war and there was many 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 different factions and groups of everything It's not just like communists and social democrats and conservatives and fascists. No, no, no. There was a million fractions and sects on every wing and side and however you twist and turn it. So even if it was a nationalistic group that had it. Remember, nationalists back in the 1800s meant you were loyal to the Kaiser, okay? So... It was a completely different type of... And and many of the Kaiser people were enemies with Hitler and, and the Nazis. But the point is, the Nazis smacked down on all these groups. They wanted monopoly. Not only that, they wanted their material, which they got. And even Nazis sympathizing, even Thule, I think, was was shut down. List Society was shut down. These were instrumental in, in bringing the... Nazis to power, had many famous Nazis in them, the Germana Orden or whatever, the new Templar Orden neue or, yeah, Templar Orden or something. So all these groups were smacked down and many, many, many more. Now, I think it just stands to reason that at some point they got their claws in because they, it wasn't just occult secrets. They wanted all kinds of secret. And they wanted the, the, the scientists to work for them. And those who refused but were too brilliant to ignore or, or let go, etc., were forced. We see that in, you go back to one of our very early shows, me and Joseph discusses the scientists who were working on the bell. Some of them we don't we know very little about and, and though they disappeared. Others <laughs> became big shots in NASA, for example. Kurt Debus and, and. But there's many, many. you Go back and hear the early shows. Uh, I, I'm just bad with names. So, my point is this Nimsa thing, yeah, they had a, a base in Germany and eventually it was. It couldn't be hidden anymore. People got arrested, people got murdered, things were surfaced, threatened, discovered, perked, who knows? And so eventually they got it. If they were Nazis from the get-go, direct sympathizers on board with the party, they would have it already in their 30s. And if they could use these things for flight already back in the day, no way the Nazis would need like 20 years before anything happened with it. They were not sitting on it for 20 years and then desperately dragging it out right before they lose the war. Neither were they working on it for 20 years and then coincidentally having a breakthrough right before the end of the war. We all know that there was too little time but that Hitler was waiting and waiting and waiting in vain. Now even the nuclear program, which wasn't that advanced of course, Uh, that that was genuine, that they needed some time and and they managed but even that came too late shipped over to America, bam Manhattan Project got a boost we all know this, or early shows, for example the one with Carter Heydrich, it's documented today so that's my take on it, that whether wherever you think this comes from, again I'm not dismissing or fan that the source the ultimate cause to it is, is exotic, but There is a parallel. If it is back-engineered or in some other way, given us, granted us by by ancient or or current sources that are not of our civilization, at the same time, coincidentally then, there has been a a development of, for example, conductors, etc. So, yeah, we have have a perfectly logical way to explain this and... uh, I'm not sure where Occam's Razor falls down on this. I mean, if, you, if you're if you a knee-jerk skeptic, obviously the Occam's Razor thing would be that we have developed it. But see, the get-go is biased. Who decides what is the simplest and most clean solution with unnecessary factors? Could it be just as simple that something crashed? Uh, could, but uh, like I say, I think it's very hard to back engineer and, and crack something that is completely exotic especially if it has alien materials and um, you know it's it's a, it's not just a language problem it's a thinking problem what about the consciousness and some say it's you know interface with biology and unconscious man it's going to be hard to get anything done but um, if it's human whether it's an ancient human or it's a renegade breakaway Contemporary faction or a return of an ancient breakaway faction, it's closer to home. It's gonna be easier to solve and integrate into our. Uh, now, for me, I for one think that the digital age is a result of the same thing. It's an aspect of that technology which has been whitewashed. It's just that energy component they're desperately clinging to. So the internet. All that stuff is a liberation of that science where the anti-gravity and the free energy aspects are still retained for now. We'll see how they will handle this now that they are going to whitewash the entire space program. But hey, this is just my uh, observations. Of course, you don't have to agree. In fact, I hope you have your own analysis and conclusions And if they then agree with me, fine, cheers, confirmation, right? But if not, congratulations, you're at least thinking for yourself. My concern is to bring you the data points so you can use them in your own thinking, not to force upon you a particular narrative. But of course, I'm not shy for my own opinions. That would be Hippocratic of me. I'm not pretending I don't have them. But uh, most of my guests, including Walter today, at least have that good ability to clarify when they speculate or opinionate or when they analyze and uh, the objective facts. So there you have it thus far today. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your support. The only thing keeping us going. I've been your host Al, leaving you in the words of Socrates. Man must rise above the Earth, to the top of the atmosphere and beyond, for only thus will he fully understand the world in which he lives. Is
0: Number one.